A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You put in the powerhouse plants, get rid of your invasive, shrink your lawn, build a pollinator garden. Everybody can do that. And then, then, then you can watch the life in your, in your yard. Hi, I'm Megan Gilger, and welcome to the Fresh Exchange Podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to the podcast today. And I am just going to jump in because this is a conversation that I have become so impassioned about. And I couldn't wait to bring this conversation to the podcast because this week, even in the in the email newsletter and on Instagram, I have mentioned native plants. In fact, I've been mentioning this pretty much since the beginning of spring, the importance of us talking about native plants. Well, I didn't just come upon this. The thing is, is I've been kind of pursuing owning 15 acres. Like what is it that I feel this sense of responsibility? You know, I don't just see that I own land it, to me, it's not about the ownership. It's about the responsibility because my name's on that deed. And so since the time that we took that responsibility on, I have been asking these questions. What is it that we can do that provides the greatest impact, that makes the greatest good? You know, And I walked into this knowing nothing, like really. And I loved that I didn't really know anything, but I was also willing to be wrong. I was willing to be curious. And that's how I came upon Doug Ptolemy. And so when I started just kind of going down this route of native plants and why native plants and the importance of native plants, his name kept popping up everywhere. Like I was even seeing my conservation district talk about Doug Ptolemy. So I was like, okay, I got to pick up this guy's book. Well, I picked up Nature's Best Hope, which is his second book. And just to give you a little background on Doug Ptolemy, he is the TA Baker Professor of Agriculture in the Department of Entomology and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Delaware, where he has authored over 104 research publications and has taught insect-related courses for over 40 years. So he knows bugs. 
He knows the ecosystem. He has been researching this stuff. So it is no surprise that he just recently released his third book, The Nature of Oaks, which I cannot wait to read. The other ones that you may have heard of are Bringing Nature Home, which was his first book that got him the most recognition, has won a lot of awards. But then there's also Nature's Best Hope, which identifies our current climate crisis and our ecosystem crisis and looks at it from the lens of insects and how insects going extinct fully impacts us. And he has completely rewritten how I see so many plants. And there are very few books in this eco world that gives a sense of reality to what we're facing right now. And in a way where it identifies very scientifically, like we are seeing a dramatic decline in these species. And if we see a dramatic decline in these species, such as monarchs and bees and you name it, I mean, every single one of these insects, plants, animals, like we're seeing a decline. What do we do about that? Like truly. And I think it can feel really heavy as a human, as a mom, as somebody who believes in the future and wants a future for my children. So I was really excited about his books because when I was reading them, the, you know, the first like few pages, I was just like, oh man, like this is heavy. This is intense. And then, you know, he really makes it clear that this is in our hands. Like this is literally something we can change. And I'm not talking about like just corporations or the government or anything like that. I'm talking about you and me. Like he makes it very clear and he set up this whole vision for this and how we can make this impact by utilizing what the resources and everything with his nonprofit called Homegrown National Park. And it's this concept that we only have so like there are all these con conservation areas and national parks and state parks that can serve and protect. Well, think about those areas like that a monarch is going from Mexico to northern Michigan. It's going to return to northern Michigan to access the milkweed that it needs to lay eggs and have its young and then re build its population. Well, when that monarch is traveling from Mexico to Michigan, what is between there? Think of all the sub suburb areas that are full of lawns, that are full of, they've removed milkweed and monarchs and monarchs need milkweed, not just to, you know, eat, but also to produce. And so this space between, because of we, we've just eliminated so much of the ecosystem outside of these conserved areas, because we believe that that's enough. It's not enough. It's just not possible. These zones where there's just lawns and non-native plants and invasive species are basically dead. They don't build upon what the greater ecosystem needs, which ultimately deeply affects us. And so we can, these conservation areas need to exist. Do not get me wrong, but where his idea came from was this concept that the homegrown national park, that we can span the space between one, one national park, one state park, one conservation and the next. So that the monarch, the, um, goldfinch, the chickadee, the robin, 
they have that space between. There isn't like these deserts that they have to pass through that they just hope they survive. It's why we're seeing declines. And so just by shifting these plants that are in our yards, not even eliminating our whole lawn, we're talking like 50, 70% of what you have in your on your space, on your lawn, on your patio even, you can shift that. You can bring that availability back into the ecosystem. And so that's what we talk about today. That's what we're going to cover and how we can be doing this, how we can empower ourselves to make a change and what does that look like? What is realistic and what isn't? And so Doug is amazing. He's wonderful. And I think you guys are going to really enjoy this because it feels so approachable. It feels so doable. So while you listen, maybe hop on to homegrowandnationalpark.org and sign your piece of land or whatever you may have in your name as your responsibility to care for, to tend to, add it to the list. So you can find that link right in the show notes. Um, There's also a blog post that kind of gives you some good resources about where to find out about native plants, where to learn about them, all of that that's also in the show notes and on the blog. So I just hope you guys enjoy this. I hope you walk away empowered. I hope you feel like this is possible. We can do this because we can. And I, and I love that Doug just took that time to really reinforce that idea with us. So let's jump on in. Yes. Thank you seriously so much for jumping on it. I mean, you are probably the number one talked about person. We have like an online community that is outside of Instagram or like any other social media platforms. And every single person there talks constantly about your books and has questions about native plants. And it's amazing. It's so cool to see them being so excited about this. That part is cool. Yeah. (laughs) So you should feel really special because you have, you know, we have like 140 people in there all across the United States and they were just so excited that, um, we could have a chat today. So, um, I think, you know, they're excited about the idea and that's, that's good. Yes. There's nothing, there's nothing exciting about me and they get confused about that, but that, you know, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, what your ideas are extremely exciting. And I think they're the things that I think everybody's just looking for something that gives us a tangible way to make progress in what yeah. feels like this, this, some really scary stuff. Cause it yeah, is. Yeah, it is. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So I think when we think about, okay, if I plant like 25 white oak trees and, you know, a bunch of milkweed this year and do all these other things, like I'm doing something on top of the other things I'm also trying to do. It feels tangible. That's right. Yeah. You can go back to those plantings and see that it's working. There are things using them. Yeah. It is very amazing. tangible. You're right. Yes. So I, we can just kick into this cause I don't want to take too much of your time and I, you're on your fifth zoom. So, um, <laughs> I, there's a sixth to- one coming up. So, <laughs> oh, well then we'll go. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so let's just like, hear some background. Like, how did you get into this? You know, you're a professor, but what got you to this place that you are right now writing these books about native species? And you know, a, lot, a lot of it was chance. And I, I, in the in the musical chair of life, I just happened to be in front of the native plant chair when the music stopped, and I sat down. Could mm-hmm. have been anybody, but I really got started when when well, you know, I am an entomologist, and yeah. and uh, 
in graduate school back in the 70s, we studied plant insect interactions quite a bit, a couple of years. And one of the main features, of course, is that um, plants have forced insects to specialize in order to get around their chemical defenses. So most of the insects that eat plants are host plant specialists. And that explains why the monarch only eats milkweed and, and you know, all the specialization that's out there. Yeah. Um, okay, that, that was great. But nobody was talking about Nobody really was talking about plants at all. It was always mm. about the insects. We certainly weren't talking about invasive plants, invasive species. Never mentioned. Nobody was thinking about it. Um, so I exited that part of my life, really uh, got my job at Delaware and, and became uh, I'm really a behavioral ecologist. I studied parental care. I studied uh, mate choice. I studied mm. interesting things. Um, none of it made any any difference, but... But it was fun. Okay. Then we moved into a new house in 2000 mm-hmm. uh, on a farm that had been, um, it was an old farm broken up into 10 acre lots. Last thing they did was mow it for hay. And when you mow for hay where I live, you're mowing all the rootstocks of all the invasive plants, multiflora rose and oriole and bittersweet and Japanese honeysuckle and on and on and on. So when you stop mowing, they all come back. Mm-hmm. And, and so by the time we moved in, the whole 10 acres looked like Sleeping Beauty's castle. I mean, you couldn't even walk. It was just this tangled mass of, of alien plants. So that was my exposure to what plant invasions really are. Yeah. And it also was my exposure to the fact that nothing's eating those plants or very, very little compared mm-hmm. to the natives. And um, so that's really what led to the research that I discovered by accident that nobody else was working on this. You know, I figured, hey, we learned about this in the 70s. This is not a surprise, but uh, there was a whole big long list of why invasive plants are bad and wrecking the food web wasn't on that list. Hmm. I said, said, well, so I I wrote an NSF grant. I wrote a USDA grant. I got both of them, which convinced me, well, my peers haven't been thinking about this either, which was also a surprise. But that's what launched me on, on this road. And then... People started asking for talks. The public wanted mm-hmm. wanted talks on this, and uh, they would ask questions, and I would see what they understood and what they didn't understand. And but they always said in the beginning, "We want something to read. What can we read?" Mm-hmm. And you know, we had just started a research; there wasn't anything to read. So I said, "Nothing, nothing, nothing," and finally said, "Okay, I will write a pamphlet." <laughs> and that pamphlet became "Bringing Nature Home," and that's that's. And I didn't think anybody would read it. Yeah. I really didn't. But, you know, the, the timing was right by accident. But mm-hmm. the public is right. Just like you said, they want to do something. Mm-hmm. And now now they see the headlines. We've lost three billion birds. We have global insect decline. You know, everything is crashing. Mm-hmm. Is there anything we can do? I say, yes, there is something you can do. And they get excited about that. Yeah. So, it you know, it it happened. But it wasn't directed by me. That's for sure. <laughs> you just... We're at the right place at the right There's time. There's the right place at the right time. So how did you integrate some of these things into your own, like, did you practice these things on your land and what did you find? Yeah, very much. And that's, that really, that motivated me to pass on what we found because I saw how well it worked. Mm-hmm. So we had very few plants on the, on the property because it was mowed for hay. I mean, there was mm-hmm. all those aliens. Um, there was a fence row with a few s- small trees next to it, but so our goal was to get rid of the invasives and, and start planting the natives that ought to be there. And right away, I saw that, you know, the insects are coming back. And 
it was just, you know, it was wild. Four years ago, I started to um, take a picture. I wanted to take a picture of every moth species that I could find on our property. Mm-hmm. I thought about it earlier, but it's a big job. And, you know, I didn't have the time, but I, it became a fun hobby. I'm still at it, but I'm up to 1,042 species of moths that have, have joined our property. So does it work? Absolutely. And, you know, they're, that's bird food. So yeah. we've recorded 59 species of birds that have bred on our property. Oh. You know, not flew by, but bred. So I say, hey, you know, this, this really works. So, um, and then, of course, I'm, I'm giving talks all over and people send me emails. Hey, this really works. And look at all the things that have come back here. Mm-hmm. So it, it is a, does really seem to be a viable approach to conservation. And it's obvious from the headlines that conservation, the way we've been doing it, which is in parks and preserves mm-hmm. and nowhere else, you know, yeah. we've excluded nature wherever we are, isn't working. Yeah. That's not working. We do want those parks and preserves, but we've got to do conservation outside them as well. That means it's got to be in private property. And that's why that's the group I talked to. Yeah. Well, that, that was the most, like when I was reading, um, nature's best hope, that was like the thing that kind of got me. I mean, I live in an area that definitely values conservation. Like it is highly, highly valued. <laughs> <laughs> and in Leelanau, do you know much oh, about Leelanau, Okay. I know Leelanau. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I live in Leelanau County and it is very much a conservation area. Like the conversation is constant and we feel very lucky and thankful for that, but it was fascinating to me because I haven't always, you know, I've lived in other areas and that is not true. And thinking about that, and my husband comes from the suburbs of Houston and that's another whole different world. And thinking about what you were talking about, about these basically deserts to, you know, monarchs and other animals that I know come all the way up and land on our property here on our 15 acres, but you know, how are they getting from point A to point B from Mexico to me? That's so fascinating to think about. And even like putting that in human terms was just like, I guess it wasn't shocking, but it was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Why hadn't I ever thought of that either? But I, you know, I just, I heard a statistic today. Monarchs have lost 165 million acres of breeding habitat. That's in between Mexico and you, Oh which that trip is now much harder to make because, yeah. because we've taken it away. And I can say that as somebody who, you know, enjoys the monarch population, even in the three years that we've been here, we have not disturbed it. If anything, we've encouraged the milkweed production on our land. And, and in fact, we've even removed like invasive bracken ferns so that, and then replaced it with the milkweed and allowed the milkweed to grow up. So there's more milkweed on our property than it was. And my son loves finding the caterpillars and watching them and going through the process of them, you know, releasing one or two a year. And he, he's noticed there wasn't like last year, he was like, when are the monarchs coming back? Like he wasn't finding them as much. And it really broke my heart where the tussock moth caterpillars took down our milkweed and I was very distraught by it. It it comes back. I mean, that's part of the process. It doesn't kill the roots. And, uh, and actually monarchs like fresh foliage much more than the older foliage. So, so milkweeds that grow up in August are really magnets for, for monarchs for that last bit of reproduction before they start to migrate. Yeah. 
Well, and I think, I guess maybe let's give a picture of like where we're at and where we could be because of these ideas. I think that's a really good way to kind of connect this for people even because after reading the book, I understand it more, but I would love to hear it from you. So. We've got serious problems, but we are on the right the right road. We are headed in the right direction. Um, there are more and more people every single day that are encouraged uh, by this. We're we're reaching that um, exponential growth period where it's just it's just expanding like crazy. Uh, so we still have we got a long way to go, but mm -hmm. we know what to do, and we have more and more people willing to do it. That's a recipe for success. Mm -hmm. um, there's still issues. Where do we get all the native plants? We need to increase the, you know, the availability. Um, there's still a lot of people that um, there's a lot of misconceptions. You know, they're all oh, they're wild and messy, and I don't I don't like wild and messy. Um, mm -hmm. They don't recognize you can use natives formally. Um, so that you know, we're, we're continue the education, but uh, believe me, we are a lot farther along today than we were ten years ago. Well, that's good. And and yeah. So, so I'm, I'm encouraged. I mean, Good. look at, look Great. at you, you're interviewing me now. Did that happen <laughs> 10 know. years ago? No. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also I think there's a lot of people that are in their twenties and thirties who are realizing how important this is because they're, you know, maybe have a child or thinking about having one or two children down the road. And they're like, well, do I want to add a child into a world that maybe you know, struggling to survive. And, yeah, yeah. you know, I think we're trying, it's, it's natural to want to fix things so that it's better, you know? And so you would think, <laughs> yeah, you would think, <laughs> so, but you know what we've got to, um, we've got to help those young folks because yeah. that's not the stage of their life where they're doing a lot of gardening for the most part. They, mm -hmm. they typically hire somebody, they hire a lawn mm -hmm. service, they hire a tree service because they're doing everything else. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we need to do is grow the the uh, you know the the new that's an empty niche I call ecological gardening or ecological landscaping so that you can just go out and, and hire one of those people as easily as you can hire that lawn care service so that you don't have to worry about learning all this stuff when you're in your twenties or thirties you're just starting your career and you've got your kids and life is hectic yeah. I remember um, <laughs> but we have to make it easier on it because everywhere. There ought to be a number of people with their their shingles out and you can hire them and, and they will do it for you on your property. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about a yeah. thing. And that doesn't really yeah. exist right now. Well, and I think even I think some people are surprised even in, you know, our community or on my Instagram or when I talk about it in blog posts where people are surprised that something that feels like, for instance, like growing up with things like every single family that I knew had hydrangea plants or, you know, a burning bush or, you know, some of these classic ornamental things that are, you know, they are beautiful. They have their, their beauty to them, but I guess explain in the very simplest terms why it's not that the hydrangea is a, like that there are plants that I don't want to say that plants are bad because every plant is important. Right. But I guess explain like why that in, in its right place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the problem is that we have, we have, our culture has been designed around the idea that plants are decorations. Mm -hmm. So of course we pick the prettiest plants and we go all over the world to find the prettiest plants. We have not thought about the vital ecological roles that they have to start playing on our landscapes. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and that's because, you know, when these ideas were developed, there was a lot of nature out there. We did not need to have functional ecosystems in our yard. They mm -hmm. could be they could be postcard dead zones and it would be OK. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, most of the world's a postcard dead zone and it's not OK. We just we 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 um, we did too much of it. Uh, and of course, the again, the idea that the hydrangeas, you know, that's the way to go. Your hydrangea is not passing on any of the energy that it it collects from the sun it turns into food and then the energy sits in the leaves there which means you have no other all the animals of the world get their energy from plants if the plants don't pass it on you don't have the animals and if you don't have the animals you don't have a functional ecosystem mm -hmm. your hydrangea is sterile it's not helping any any uh, pollinators there's no pollen or nectar in it mm -hmm. um, so it's a decoration but it could be plastic and it would be contributing just as much to your landscape so um, that's that's not what we want. That's yeah. not what we, you know, these days we have fractured, we have fragmented nature so much that now all the places in between those little habitats that still exist need to start contributing to those habitats. So mm -hmm. if your landscape doesn't enhance your local ecosystem, if it continues to degrade it, we got to change it. Mm -hmm. And there's four things every landscape has to do. Mm -hmm. They all have to support a viable food web. And, and to me, that means you got to have a lot of caterpillars on your landscape. Mm -hmm. If you can't support one breeding chickadee on your landscape, there's a, there's an issue. And to have one breeding chickadee, you need, you need six to 9,000 caterpillars just to get it to the point where it leaves the nest. Mm -hmm. And then the parents feed a caterpillars another 21 days. Mm -hmm. And no, they're not flying down the road to the woodlot because they only forage 50 meters from the nest. Mm -hmm. If you don't have all those caterpillars in your property, you can't even have one family of chickadees. And of course, we want a whole population yeah. of birds. The other thing you have to do is, is sequester carbon. You got to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, lock it up in the plant tissues, and then pump it into the ground. Mm -hmm. Every landscape has to do that. Mm -hmm. These days, urgently. Mm -hmm. And when you have a giant lawn, that's the worst plant in terms of sequestering carbon that you could possibly choose. Because of the shallow root system, right? Shallow roots. And then you, if it grows, you mow it. Mm -hmm. So you've just released all the carbon that was locked up in there. So every plant sequesters carbon. But why don't we put the best plants in there mm -hmm. instead of the worst? Over, you know, we've got 40 million acres of lawn. Yeah. That's the size of New England mm -hmm. in an area that's not sequestering carbon mm -hmm. the way it could be. Mm -hmm. Our landscapes have to manage the watershed. Mm -hmm. Everybody lives in a watershed. Nobody has the ethical right to destroy it. And our big lawns with very few plants do destroy it. Mm -hmm. And everybody has to support um, viable or, or complex communities of, of pollinators. Mm -hmm. Not because they pollinate our crops. That I wish they'd never said that. They say you pollinate a third of our crops. It's actually about a twelfth of our crops. Mm -hmm. And people think, well, I don't live next to a farm, so I don't need any pollinators. They pollinate 80% of all plants and 90% of all flowering plants. And if we lost them, we'd lose 80 to 90% of the plants on the planet. That's not an option. Mm -hmm. Where do we need pollinators? Everywhere we need plants. Mm -hmm. That means your yard too. Mm -hmm. How many pollinators is your lawn supporting? These days, none, mm -hmm. because there's a, a broadleaf herbicide in the fertilizer you put on your lawn. So it kills all the clover and anything else that might bloom. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are four things every landscape has to start doing. And if you're not doing it, you're degrading your local ecosystem instead of enhancing it. But each one of those four things is easy to do, even if you're an individual. Yeah. You put in the powerhouse plants, get rid of your invasive, shrink your lawn, build a pollinator garden. Everybody can do that. And then then, then you can watch the life in your in your yard. Yeah. Do you feel like, I mean, you can't really take it down to a, a, maybe a percentage, but... 
you know, my, my husband, you know, wants like a little bit of a yard for the kids to play in and then, you know, can, and, but I'm always like, okay, but we can need to make sure we have all these other things. And, you know, I like, do you feel like if somebody was asking, like, what is there a percentage ratio that we should be thinking about in some way, or how would you explain that to somebody? You know, lawn is the perfect plant to walk or run on without killing it. Mm-hmm. And if you have little kids, I totally agree. You know, they need some yard mm-hmm. to run around, play kickball, play wiffle ball. That's great. But mm-hmm. that's actually a very ephemeral phase of your life. You may, it may not seem yeah. like it now, but in a few years, yeah. <laughs> the kids will be gone. So you can say, okay, I have more lawn now, but, but we're going to transition later on. Mm-hmm. Um, what trees are on your property? If you have no trees, mm-hmm. I bet you can put some in. Kids like to climb trees mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Then which tree are you going to choose to put in? Those are the types of decisions you should make. But right now, lawn should yeah. go where you walk. And as you get older, you know, you're going to use it more as a path than a three acre, um, you know, Thomas Rainer calls it, uh, you should use lawn as an area rug instead of wall to wall carpeting. And it's a good way to to look at it. Um, but yes, it, you know, there's individual decisions and young kids, I I agree. They got to chase those lightning bugs, but you won't have any lightning bugs unless you Mm -hmm. have leaf litter someplace. They're predators in leaf litter. Um, you Mm -hmm. won't have it if you put the, the toxins on your, your lawn, you won't have them if you've got night lights on all night long and all the things we do to kill the things around us. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm just ranting here, but. <laughs> no, no, it, it's important. I think we forget that these things that are, you know, we've come to believe are like part of being the human experience may actually be, it's kind of unraveling some of that, you know, and renaming it as something more. And I, I like, we just have this like one spot on our whole 15 acres that, it, that we mow really. And the rest of it, the only reason we mowed it was because there were all these invasive species and it was part of getting rid of them and replacing them with wild rye, you know, and other native grasses. And, you know, there's like all the, it takes so long to work through all of that. And I think we forget and to do it naturally, you know, with like, you know, like we, we were on a sand pit basically. And we wanted to revitalize it because it had been stripped at one point and, you know, taken all the nutrients and everything out of the soil. There was no topsoil to work with. So there's just like all this rebuilding and it's a very different mindset than even like, even though I never grew up in a suburb, you know, it was even a lot for me to rethink and to relearn. And then my husband grew up in a suburb and for him to relearn, like, how do I take care of a lawn? And like a perfect lawn isn't actually as great as we might think it is. And, you know, to unravel those things is, I think it's just one more of those things that I think we're all going through in this new chapter of being human. You're bombarded with misinformation all the time. You know, you're, the the commercials yeah. tell you you have to have a perfect lawn. If you have a dandelion, you're you're just not a good person. Your neighbor will hate you. And of course, you don't want that to happen. So, you know, will it poison your kids? <laughs> that's that's okay. I'll get rid of that dandelion. You know, <laughs> and when you hear that day in and day out, um, and it's the idea that humans are not part of nature. Yeah, humans are here in nature someplace else. Where that I, I know where that came from. I mean, you know, in the old days. 
nature used to kill us. Mm-hmm. It was it was a dangerous place. There were predators that ate us and it starved us and killed our crops. And it was it was tough out there. So the more we beat back nature, the better we survived and the more mm-hmm. genes we spread. Mm-hmm. We've gotten a little too good at that because it's too much of a good thing. If you beat it to death, we're dead too because mm-hmm. we totally depend on natural ecosystems. So we got to hit a, a, a compromise. The big predators are gone. I don't, I'm not worried about being eaten anymore when I walk outside. Um, I'm more worried about being in such a dead zone that, that uh, we have ecosystem collapse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there, there, you know, we can adjust. That's what this big brain is for. Here. <laughs> That's very true. I, so I, I guess, so I have some questions from our community, but I'm going to tie up with one last question. And that is as someone listening today, like they're just like, okay, I get it. Like I have to help in all these ways. Like how do, where do I even start? I'm so new to this. Where do I, how do I learn what a native species is and what it, you know, a non-native, you know, all those questions because they aren't labeled at, you know, you go to, you know, a nursery or a landscape store or, you know, anything like that. And you may not, they don't put, this is a non-native or a native, like you have to kind of do some research. Some some of them do actually. Well, they won't say non-native, but some of them will label natives. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, the simplest thing I think is planting a tree. Okay. And depending where you live, but if you live in Michigan, planting a tree is appropriate. Mm -hmm. If you live in the Southwest desert, maybe not, Mm -hmm. but um, all right, which tree are you going to plant? And that depends a little bit on where, where you live, but um, there's a lot of resources out there. Every, every state has a native plant society. Um, So, so strike up a conversation with them or, or just do a little bit of reading. I mean, I would recommend an oak. You're getting up there in, in Lula. So the farther north you go, the um, the more oaks drop out. Yeah. But they are the top, I call them keystone plants in mm-hmm. terms of supporting the life around you. In eighty four percent of the counties of, of North America. How do what how how does an why is an oak specifically considered like what makes them so important to the ecological landscape? The animals that pass energy from plants to other animals better than anything else are caterpillars. If you don't develop a landscape that has a lot of caterpillars, you don't have birds, you don't have a whole bunch of things. So they're, they're a, if you, if you want to make it simple, just say, I got to make as many caterpillars as possible. Okay. What is the best plant to do that? Oaks. They support 950 species of caterpillars oh nationwide. Where I live, 557 species of, of caterpillars, 557 species of bird food, as opposed to a tulip tree that supports 21 or a ginkgo that supports zero. Um, so it's pretty easy to focus mm-hmm. in on the, on, I call them keystone plants because if you take them out of the food web, the food web collapses, just mm-hmm. like the keystone on a, on, a, on a Roman arch. If you take yeah. the keystone out, the arch collapses. Um, so think of the of this, I'm going to start to help my yard. You're building an ecological house. Mm-hmm. The keystone plants are the, the two by fours of that house. Mm. Your house will not stand up if you build it out of wallpaper. And that's what we've done for the last hundred years. Yeah. It's only wallpaper and our houses are not standing up. They're all crumpled. So the keystone plants are essential, but your house isn't finished when you have the, the two by fours mm-hmm. up, you, you know, but they're essential. Um, so that's, you don't have to complete your landscape in one season. No. Just add one tree a year and be happy at that. And then, and put it in your lawn. Mm-hmm. So then put a bed around that tree and now you've reduced the area of lawn. 
Mm. Those simple acts. I could do that in an hour on one day of mm -hmm. the year. Um, can I afford a tree? Yes, you can. Put an acorn in the ground. It is free. I mean, it, <laughs> a lot of people saying, well, I need a 13 foot oak. That'll cost me $3,000 and I can't afford that. No. Forget the instant gratification. That's a great way to get a tree that's going to die and to throw away a whole bunch of money because mm -hmm. those trees have to be root pruned so much in order to move them. Mm -hmm. And then it'll sit there for a decade trying to rebuild its roots. Mm -hmm. If you plant that acorn, it will get it will be much bigger than the 13 foot tree you just bought in no time at all. It's a little slow in the beginning, but they're putting yeah. out a giant root system uh, and then then they take off. So that's what I would do and, okay. and see how it goes. I mean, you have to, there are other things like deer that mm -hmm. come and eat everything you plant. So you have to protect them from the deer yeah. with maybe a little cage. Um, but you learn. And mm -hmm. if you, you know, this is for the people who say, I hate this and I don't want to do it. They should be able to hire somebody who does it. Yeah. So it still gets done. Yeah. But saying, well, I, you know, the only thing I can do is sit on a mower. You can do more than that. Yeah. You know, you can find the appropriate people or, or, you know, put in that plant and reduce the area you're going to mow. Yeah. I'll come over and plant a tree for you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, that's right. Look at all the people that live in apartments. And they yeah. say, well, I can't, I can't help. Yes, you can mm -hmm. help somebody who owns land and, mm -hmm. and uh, help a, a land conservancy or a, or a park or preserve. Yes. They and all, they're all underfunded. They're all understaffed. Yeah. They all need help. Yes. So, and it's such a good way to connect with people. And particularly right now, it's a safe way to connect with people. You're outside yeah, you're doing stuff. That's right. And, that's right. So, um, perfect. Awesome. I just have a few questions specifically from our community. So it, we, you know, I have my blog and social platforms, but I specifically have like a community of people that are much more intense. We focus on gardening and all of that. And, and we have a whole section about native plants and um everything so i asked them like i i told them that i was gonna have you on and they wanted to ask some questions so there's there's three of them so we'll go through okay. them pretty quick right. so this one's from tracy she says i understand that doug lives near me i'm in oxford pennsylvania my question would be I'm very near you yeah. <laughs> i'm in oxford pennsylvania oh you guys are neighbors <laughs> we are <laughs> My question would be in regards to our local pest, the lanternfly. Has he had any success uh -huh. in dealing with them since our early cycle lanternflies should be appearing shortly? Yeah. This is the year they are going to explode on our property. We had a few last year and I'm seeing the egg masses all over the place. Mm. Um, so one of the, one of the um, important native plants that I encourage on our property is native grape. It's a, it's a very powerful plant. But those lantern flies love native grape. So they, um, they'll lay their eggs anywhere. That's how they got here. They mm -hmm. laid them on ornamental rocks from China and we brought them in. Uh, so right now, before those eggs hatch, look around on the underside of branches, scrape, just scrape off the egg mass. It's a, it's a whitish, flattish thing. You'll recognize it, I think, after a while. Um, or if they if they're high, uh, I I would think that spraying dormant oil on the eggs, you know, horticulture oil, mm -hmm. it will it will smother them. Um, once they hatch and they become nymphs, they're they they jump, they're they're hard. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to try to catch one to squish it is is tough. But um, 
So that's what I would do right away if you if you uh, think you've got them and you probably do because they're really exploding in this area. Spray those egg masses with dormant oil as soon as you can and see if that helps. And they're like everywhere, like on, like you can find there. It's not just like on an, a certain tree or like you said, they, they're on rocks. and They prefer, you know, if you have any Alanthus on your property, which okay. is an invasive plant. Yeah. They love Alanthus. That's what they develop on the best. So, yes, they will be there. Um, it's a real good reason to take down your Alanthus if you didn't have one before. Uh, but they do, you know, they, they'll, they'll lay on a lot of things. They, they really do like fruit trees. Um, like apples, they like maples, and they like uh, grapes. So domestic grapes are native grapes. They're going to be, you know, developing on those. And then they'll lay their egg masses around. And they also have, have learned, they lay their eggs together. They're gregarious. So if one lays an egg mass here, another one will. And you get a whole string in an area. So if you find, a, a, if you find one egg mass, you're going to find a bunch. Um, okay. that's a good, good place to start, but yep. Another, another problem we've created for ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> they seem to be endless. <laughs> uh, okay. So this is from Tori. I am curious how strict, uh, you are with the term native and your thoughts on that. Would you plant things that are native to North America, even if not your specific region, or do you stick to only things that are native to your exact location? I'm in between. Okay. Uh, what my definition of native is something that co-evolved with the plants and animals around it, so it knows its community. I can I can go to the Rocky Mountains and get a blue spruce and plant it in my yard, and it'll do just fine. But the Rocky Mountain ecosystem is so different from Southeast Pennsylvania that even though it grows here, it's totally separated from the things that have adapted to it that can actually use it. So that's not a whole lot different from from going to China and planting mm -hmm. a tree in my yard where it's totally separated from anything that's going to use it, that that has evolved the adaptations necessary to take advantage of the nutrients in that plant, plant to come from the sun. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, so but but some plants have a big distribution. Uh, so uh, American beech grows from Canada down to Florida and all the mm -hmm. way, you know, west just past the, the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. If I have an insect that eats beech, it can eat beech from anywhere because it, it, you know, it, it is adapted to the chemicals in beech leaves. Your beech seeds won't grow anywhere uh, mm. because the, the beech seed from Florida is not going to grow well in Pennsylvania because it, it's adapted. It's not adapted yeah. to cold. So you've got to stick with the provenance of your plant. That's important. But um, I don't know. Does that help? No, that no, that is really good. And I think just be the other question I think I would even add to that is like if something just because something's a non-native, does that necessarily make it invasive or is that like a different, no, no. Totally different term? All invasive plants are non-native, but not all non-natives are invasive. So, for example, Forsythia is a non-native plant, but it's sterile. It does not doesn't not make any seeds. It'll spread vegetatively, but not far. Okay. Ginkgos are you know they are non-native, but they don't they there's no evidence that that they're spreading um, in, invasively. So, okay. um, uh, yeah, the very different terms, but. Uh, there are no non-natives that are supporting a whole lot of wildlife. So even if, if that forsythia doesn't move anywhere in your yard, 
it's taking up space. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a decoration that is there. So again, you know, it could be just a statue or, or a plastic prosythia and it's there, but that's not how to build a, a really powerful food web in your yard. Okay. If you were, I mean, obviously like it, it, what would be a good counter natively to say, you know, this Midwestern Eastern area of the United States to Forsythia? Because like right now you drive around and up here and it's everywhere. Like everyone has it in their yard. And right. So in other words, what native is going to be a decoration just like Forsythia? <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe not a decoration as much as it's yeah. like, like to me, like growing up Forsythia also like played a part in like hiding things, you know, like if you have like, uh, you know, for us, like we have a uh, propane pig on our land, you know, so like you don't want to have it, I, I was like thinking the other day, I was like, we got to put something around this at some point. Like, and I was trying, I I was going to do research this week and. Um, so a good screen, a good screen. Is what yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it was still contributing uh, to the landscape. obviously. Right. Eastern red cedar is a wonderful screen all year round. Mm. Um, and it contributes a lot to the landscape. It's not yellow in the spring. Yeah. Um, but uh, we do have native screens. If you're looking for native bushes and things like your native viburnums, viburnum dentatum is a, yeah. is a good one. Um, then you've got white flowers instead of yellow ones. Uh, but let me also say there, you know, there is room for compromise. Mm-hmm. So some of our research has shown you can have up to 30% of the, the woody plant biomass in your yard, non-native and still support viable food webs. As long as 70% is, is native. Okay. Um, we're not going to compromise on whether it's invasive or not. So no burning yeah. bushes because they will not stay in your yard. No buckthorn, no, none mm-hmm. of those things that have just, you know, ecologically castrated all the land around us. Mm-hmm. Um, but your forsythia is not one of those. So mm-hmm. if you say, I really want a forsythia, it, it's part of my cultural, you know, heritage with my, cause I grew up with it. Um, but I've got big oak trees over here and, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, it's it's okay, you know. There, that's the compromise that I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. It, everything. There's a little bit of a middle ground with everything. It's just what are those middle ground things, you know? Right. Yeah. But I we've think- we've measured measured the suburban landscapes where where I live in Southeast PA and and North Northeast uh, Maryland and Delaware, and it's 82 percent non-native. Mm. That's not a compromise. Yeah. That has to That's, those are landscapes that are eighty-two percent dead, <laughs> which is too much. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to be eighty-two percent dead, and neither does our ecosystem. So. <laughs> yeah, and I hadn't really thought about it that way too. Like, if it, it's full of non-native things, then yeah, it is essentially not working, and not. Yeah, that that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, okay, last one, really quick. What are some of the best resources to determine native plants for your area, and then resource and then sourcing them? You kind of touched on this, but if you have anything else that you would prefer to. Well, you, you can go to the native plant finder, mm-hmm. the, you know, the National Wildlife Federation website to tell you which plants uh, you should have, where to get them. You know, it's different every place around the country. So that's where I would, I would, first of all, Google's great these days, mm-hmm. you know, put in, uh, you know, native plant nurseries in your county, they'll mm-hmm. pop up. Yeah. Um, and if you have trouble with that, ask your, again, send an email to your, your uh, native plant society. They know mm-hmm. everybody who's dealing with it. There's a lot of um, all purpose nurseries that are carrying more natives. Now they mm-hmm. recognize this is, this is a growth part of the industry. 
uh, there's a, there's a market for it. Mm-hmm. The only reason they didn't carry them before is there was no market for it. Nobody was buying them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the public and the nurseries fed on each other and now they can feed on each other in a positive way. The public mm-hmm. wants these plants, the nurseries, they just want to sell plants. They're not, you know, they're not tied into Chinese plants for any reason. They just, they've got a long memory. These plants sell well, and yeah. it's hard to convince them that maybe that's not the future, but yeah. um, some of them are, some of them are learning. If you would like more information about native planting and what is native in your area, you can check out homegrownnationalpark.org, Doug's nonprofit, where he has more information in the show notes. You can find information on all three of his books, which I highly recommend, as well as a blog post where I have given some resources and more that will help you in pursuing changing your lawn into a space that is helpful to the ecosystem, if that is of interest. Next week, I'm going to be helping you design and create your own herb garden. Yes, you don't have to grow vegetables. You can just grow herbs. I know it's crazy, but we will talk all about it next week. Until then, I'll see you out there, friends. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.